Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to episode 46 of my Mavericks podcast. I've been away for a long time, in case you haven't noticed. Um, I'm sorry if you missed me. I've missed you. I just, I haven't posted for a couple of months, and I just couldn't quite find the time to do it. I've had one of those periods which happens occasionally in my life where I was just too busy to really focus on my hobbies. I hate it when work gets like that because I actually become far less productive and far less imaginative. But anyway, our eldest daughter got married a couple of weeks ago and that re-sparked me into a position where I felt creative and energised, although physically and emotionally exhausted. And here I am introducing another episode of my Mavericks podcast. I'm actually sitting in a very large room at the moment recording this introduction with a fleece over my head because when I first recorded the introduction it sounded very echoey so try and visualize that it's actually an off-white colored fleece and it's pretty dirty but I've been reading about the damage that washing fleeces does to the environment so I'm a bit stuck on whether I should wash it and damage the environment or just wear a really quite nasty off-white fleece anyway so hold that for a moment hold that image of me sitting in a large room with a dirty off-white fleece over my head and I will tell you about Camp Glendie. Now some of you that have an interest in the businesses that Caroline and I do may have noticed that about six months ago we launched a a new venture in Scotland called Glendie Cabins and Cottages. This is a collection of really beautiful cabins and cottages for short-term holiday rental in a truly remarkable location at Glendie in Kincardinshire, which is where we've lived on and off for about 30 years. Anyway, launching those led us to the idea of creating a series of very small residential camps for people. And I suppose we called them to an extent micro-festivals, and that isn't actually a bad introduction. The idea is that 25 or 30 people come and stay in luxurious accommodation and spend a few days doing amazing, interesting things in this remarkable location. From this first Camp Gendai, which happened in very late May and early June, we had uh, wild baking, we had a whole raft of outdoor activities, including bridge building, tree chopping down, fire lighting, river swimming. We had a series of talks. We had music with James Sills and also with a terrific exponent of the Scottish fiddle. We had foraging with an expert. We had uh, wild navigation, or natural navigation, I should say, with Tristan Gooley. We had Alex Gregory, who is the double gold medal winning rower that I interviewed before. Anyway, anyway, it was brilliant. It was a wonderful experience, and a programme of five in the future will be released fairly soon. But that leads me to this conversation. Today's conversation is with Dee Ritali and Jorg Fernandez of Fortitude Bakery. George and Dee were instrumental in setting up the eponymous Fernandez and Wells in London, a series of incredibly influential and very wonderful cafes. And we invited them up to Glendie to cook dinner, to also give some breakfast cooking instructions over the campfire and to have this conversation around the campfire with me. So we sit down at the campfire with the 25 or so guests who are at Camp Glendie and we rest on hay bales, we 
fill up our glasses and we start to chat. So here you go. So the, the idea tonight is um, that last night at Camp Glendai, we were cooked for by George and Dee. And I'm not sure that any of you have really sort of found out enough about you guys. And so w w the point we're at now is that George and Dee are running together one of the most interesting and ex exciting and beautifully styled bakeries in Britain, if not in the world. But, I, but I'm sort of, in, we'll come to that, but I'm kind of interested in trying to um, spool back from that and find out about you, Dee. And, and Dee said something interesting this morning, which I'd never known, which is that you spent nine or ten years living in Morocco, is that right? Well, probably over the last 25, it adds up to about nine or ten years. Okay. Yeah. So, so what, what made you, what, made, what, what took you to Morocco? Well, I was married to a Moroccan for a long time. And But out of my own choice, I decided I would go and spend time there because I had children who were half Moroccan. Right, okay. And uh, I also had family-in-law who were Moroccan. Moroccan as well. And I chose to learn the language and learn more about the culture and the food. And very, and it's a very interesting place to be. But, but, you're, but So you're a Gaelic-speaking Irish girl. Yeah. How did you end up being married to a Moroccan? Well, I was working at Stanford's as an intern, learning how to map, right. basically. And uh, my career path sort of took a slight turn where I decided that I would actually use the skills that I was taught as a child because I really wanted to cook. But it's difficult to get into when you think you should go to university and you should do all the things that your parents say you should do. And I just left everything and started learning to be a cook, and that's where I met, met him. Okay, so how old were you at this stage? I was about 20, Okay, just 20. And, and did you move to Morocco? Uh, no, I had to do, I did lots of training. I did a stage with Justin de Blanc. Uh, I did three years with him. Uh, I was probably the only woman left in my year by the end of the three years. And as part of that, I what he did was to teach you how to develop your skills as a chef as a cook as, as a baker and he used to say travel keep what i've taught you but travel and it just became part of my psyche to travel but you you were you were sort of 20 18 20 year old girl yeah. from ireland yeah, was yeah. this a, was this in oxford or no or this was in london in london okay okay and and so you you gave up your mapping yeah you didn't go to university. You I dropped out after 18 months. What what course? Uh, <laughs> Don't say cartography. It was cartography. It was, okay. <laughs> okay, that's kind of obvious. Yeah, 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 yeah okay. cartography. Okay, and so, and so you went to work for him, and, and you say that you were the only one of the only girls that survived. Was it brutal, as, as it we read? It was brutal, yes. Yeah. But I had, the, the good training was, um, on my cartography course, it was cartography and land surveying, which I knew nothing about land surveying because it was all mathematical and what am I doing here it was only men right I was the only woman on that course which actually if maybe there'd been other women on the course I might have stayed the course itself but I thought I can't where, do sorry, this where was this this was at South Bank University okay. in London wow. okay. and um, it was just very tedious because nobody wanted to interact with me and uh, I when I started cooking it had given me enough of a backbone to say well I don't mind what everybody else does I'm gonna stick this out plus it was amazing but it was it's brutal 
it's it was still a, brutal. Right, okay, so, so this is something that I think we're all probably aware of, is this sort of brutality in the kitchen. Yeah. And, and so describe to us a kind of a day. I mean, you go, you're, what, you're at this stage, you're 20. I was probably, at this stage, I'd finished with Justin the Blank and I'd been put into uh, the Waterside Cafe in the Barbican, which at the time actually was just about to get their Michelin star. So I was put in the kitchen as a commie chef. Right. Um, there was me and another girl. So you you go in and you get the shittest jobs. And they would say there's 25 kilos of potatoes and 25 kilos of onions. And actually what you learn pretty quickly is they don't want 25 kilos of potatoes. They just want to see you do it. Which I it took me a bit of time to realise well, you can't ever say no. Because so, if you start saying no, then you don't get anywhere. And that it was constantly, you're constantly tested. So is that is that bullying or is it is it is it against girls or is it just it's just because it sounds really unpleasant to me i think there was there was guys there that were at my level at the time that were being treated in exactly the same way so i never felt like it's me i didn't take it personally and i never cried about it i I just thought i'm here i've my parents are in ireland going crazy because i'm doing this and i guess i felt all at at every point this is where i'm meant to be even if this is shit, even if I do 15 hours a day, 16 hours a day, and I go home, you wash, you come back, you don't sleep. If I miss a trick, if I miss a step, then I'm out. That was what I did feel pressure on, but I never felt it was personal to me or that it was about women, because I've never felt that. No, no, no. I wouldn't I, allow I, yeah. myself to feel that. Even yeah. now, I don't allow myself to feel that. So I just kept kept going. It was, it was at times where you think, I would look at other people being treated badly and think this is cruel. But I was getting the same treatment. I never felt it about myself. I would, I would, a lot of the guys would come and cry on my shoulder and say, I can't do it, I'm dropping out. And I'd be like, just keep going. You know? if you, or if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But, 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 but I'm going to stick I'm with it. I'm going to stick with yeah. it. So you stuck with it. And then, and then what, what happened? Um, I stayed in the restaurant industry. I think I worked my way up pretty quickly. And then I got my first head chef job. Um, after doing a three-year stage with um, Justin DeBlanc that became Digby Trout Restaurant Group that worked with, uh, we were working with Gordon Ramsay, uh, with Rick Stein, with lots of people who weren't very nice either, but you just kind of, you did certain jobs in certain places to get you to where you needed to be. So you went from being a commie at the DeBlanc chain to being a head chef within within the group the digby trout restaurant group within three years or within something. three years wow yeah. amazing okay so then you're you're chefing in in london in in pretty much at the top of your game right yeah i didn't ever feel because you you need to specialize in something so i specialized in patisserie so i actually went back to school i went and studied culinary arts for a year because you can do it in a year um and then did another stage with the same company starting at the bottom because I didn't know enough about pastry that I felt that I needed to get to. And at the time, they were really, you could earn a lot of money as a pastry chef. So there was that, that level of, you think I've gone through this really difficult time and I now need to earn money. I would like to earn money because I wanted to, I wanted to open somewhere myself. And that's kind of what that led to. Right, okay. And so when does your Moroccan adventure your your marriage when does what stage I was about 22 23 and I had my daughter in the middle of all of this I had a a child who um, 
just literally kind of grew up in restaurants and cafes and patisseries, whatever route I took, she came with me. Um, and then I had another child. I had two daughters, two very little daughters. And I decided I would... Uh, I went to work for a, a business called Bumblebee Whole Foods because I wanted to learn more about organic food and wheat-free, dairy-free, specialist foods. But at the time, nobody would teach you anything because... The American groups that were in London at the time were very cagey about it, so it was like you had to learn by yourself because it was an industry that was about to boom and the organic industry was about to boom, so you had to find your own foothold in it. And when I was working at Bumblebee, a group called Fresh and Wild, which were Whole Foods as they are now, they approached me to go and set up their bakery. And I said, I'm not doing it for you, but I'll do it for myself. And they actually backed me to do it, um, which was amazing. And that's how I started my business, which I then grew from my little kitchen in Camden to being quite a big thing, which at the time I don't think I realised how big it was, but actually it was... So I, I'm really... I, what, what intrigues me is, is the sort of the guts that comes... How, you know, so you, you grow up in, in rural Ireland mm. and you move to London aged 18 or... Not quite 18. 18. So, so what... what so there's, there's, I mean, ambition is often characterised as not being a good thing, but, but mm. I think it's a wonderful thing. What was the sort of ambition, in, what was the drive in you to get, to, to leave home? Very brave. Um, my, I, I grown up with, all my, all my family seemed to be women. So my, my grandmother, who was an incredibly strong person in our life, had an incredibly strong daughter who then had more daughters who and all the family were strong women basically if you're ill so what you got to get up and go to school my mother I'm like yes. I've got a baby here you've got no time for this bullshit so there was a lot of that that went on I mean that that's fascinating that in itself is is really interesting isn't it so what number are you in age I'm number three so I was ignored which was amazing because I was feral and I would literally, I would leave the house in the morning and nobody would notice I was gone until dinner time. And naturally, George talks about my natural clock, I would know it was six o'clock and I should go home because I was hungry. And it was, it was always six o'clock. How interesting. Okay. So it was a good, it was a very, you know, I never felt like I was bypassed when but, I but, was the third child in. But that gave you some sort of sense of kind of independence and confidence. Oh, that big family. Yeah. Oh, completely. I, I, we were such a unit. I was telling Caroline this last night that we were such a unit that we didn't need anybody else. And I'm still exactly the same way. I have people who are close to me now that I choose to be close to me, but I don't need to go out and find people to be close to. And it's because you're one of eight children and you have grandparents who are always there on both sides. You have aunts. Grandma, there was always somebody there. Okay, I find this is really interesting because I think most people that leave home to go to another country and then and then sort of do a new career are often escaping something. But it, mm. but in but in reality, what you were doing was the opposite. You were confident, settled, strong family, and that gave you the confidence to go and, and do something. Because I mean, without sounding um, patronising, it's, it's quite brave what you did. Yeah, I, you see, anything, I don't think anything I do is brave. I don't think anything... I, I think that in our life, fear holds you. And when you're a kid in Ireland, where it's you... I had this, this is where I... I it was a woodland that I grew up beside, and there was a river, and I swam by myself in the river, and I 
crossed over the river on a felled tree and I never thought this is ridiculous and you need to be careful because you could really hurt yourself. Yes. We had bikes, we would chase around, we were feral. We were just, yes. and, and I think that was such a vital part of children's lives at the time in Ireland because you came from quite a political, very Catholic family that gave you balls to do things because you're listening to this all the time. There was always Yes, a story but my point is that, you know, often you hear about people, I think, who travel abroad and start something who are actually escaping from unhappiness, but you were actually being liberated by that. You were being set free by that. Well, I think upbringing. I was lucky with my, my upbringing in that my mother was very tough. There was nothing easy. There was nothing... Uh, not necessarily caring, but I'm sure if she sat here, she would agree that it wasn't, uh, you know, there was no love and kisses at the end of the day. It was like you go to bed and you get up and you do what you have to do. And they didn't say, I, I've been cooking since I was very, very young. And whatever I made, my mother has never said, that's great. Mm. <laughs> never. <laughs> she would always say, that could have been better. That could have been better. <laughs> And it make your my brain has always stayed like that. So now my ambition comes from thinking always that can be better. My my dad. Um. So we we built this big farm shop at Harden, massive farm shop. And before it, my dad had a farm shop about the size of this fire pit. Mm. And when I built the new one, he said, "You've really improved the farm shop." <laughs> <laughs> and I love my dad. Yeah. I loved him deeply, but I wanted him to say. What you've built is it's truly amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. His take on it was you've improved it. Yeah, yeah. Or I'd get the, uh, she'd give me a recipe to try, which I was, you know, because her recipes worked. And I'd make what she had made. And she would say, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't as good as mine. <laughs> or what did you put in it? And then immediately it all went downhill. So it was never, you know, there was no... But there's massive confidence from that. And so um, you, you then... Uh, you, you went off to Morocco, sort of on and off, um, yeah. married to a Moroccan guy or with a Moroccan guy. What, what, what was that like for, for um, you know, a, a, a person from Ireland? Um, it, the first time I went, I thought I had landed on the moon because he, had also, he also has a huge family of women. So that was another challenge. <laughs> that was more challenging than my own family of women who had lined up outside of the par the, his parents' house. And I was much, much younger than them, much taller than them, much blonder than them. And they were just looking at me like, who the hell has he brought home? This strange, tall woman that he's brought into our family. With two daughters who With two daughters who uh, so looked Moroccan. Right, OK. They were completely Moroccan-looking. So I was the kind of, in every situation, I have been the one that stood out of the crowd. And it was really tough with them. They would sit back and they would watch me from a distance. And they weren't speaking to each other verbally, but they were all saying like, because they wanted him to marry a Moroccan. That was their aim. But then they got to know me and it was a completely different ball game. And, and this has had a, this, this, this part of your life, I think you were saying this morning when we were cooking around this fire, has had a big effect on the way that you've cooked for the last 20 years or so. So well, the eldest girl is now 21? She's 24. 24, okay. So, I mean, that's had a big effect on you, hasn't it? Well, I think what, what changed at the time was I'd had a very formal uh, training. 
and you knew how to brunoise and you knew how to make patisserie and it was all very, you, you julienned your carrots, you, did, you know, it was very formal. And when I went to Morocco, Rashid's family were, it, it was a family of chefs, of cooks, amazing, amazing cooks. And what they taught me was about ingredients from that part of the world. My own family had taught me so much about sort of Western and very Irish side of ingredients and provenance. And they would do crazy things like they would drive for seven hours to buy honey. I'm not kidding you, up a mountain road. And I'm like, where the hell are we going? And you'd get there and his mom, who was this tiny little Moroccan woman, would go to this giant honey cellar. And it was so bizarre. I've got photographs of it. Pick the honey up, pour it on the ground. And if it ran, she would say it's no good. And I'd be like, but it tastes great. And she'd be like, shut up, because <laughs> we, you don't know anything about anything here. And I, what I'd learned later, which was amazing, was that it had glucose in. Because honey won't run, even in heat. It will stay, it will take so long to spread. But if they've added glucose to the honey, it means that they make more money, but it just runs. So she knew everything about olive oil, meat, vegetables we would go to the market together and she would say no to me it would be great and she'd be like no that's shit you're not having that and it influenced me again provenance with new ingredients but you also had to learn to be as good as them yes you yes. didn't have a choice in that it was like you say you can do this so i'm going to teach you how to do it the moroccan way and it just i i had no choice right so it wasn't an epiphany it was just a kind of you had, to, you had to adapt. You had to adapt to live there too because you wouldn't... For them, what children ate was so important. And for her, when I was living there, for her, her grandchildren had to be able to eat Moroccan food. Mm. She didn't have this thing where you'd go and, you know, where, oh, she'll eat pasta. She'd be, no, she'll eat what we're eating. Mm. That's the bottom line here. The, these children are Moroccan. There was never a mention of Irish in there. They are Moroccan and they will eat what we're eating. So other than the fact I thought it was wonderful and these people were so skilled and the way they'd made pastry was amazing and I would, was so privileged to be able to go in and see places working because they knew everybody and they knew really great patissiers in Rabat and you just learnt. And I, I was, yeah, it's been, I was very, very lucky to be able to do it. So the, the, um, one of the sort of pivotal moments that brings you... Um, to sitting around this fire tonight is I think I'm right in saying that you walked into your now other half's restaurant Fernandes and Wells yeah. one day and I'm right in saying you sort of decided things need to be run slightly more efficiently there and then uh, no what I actually my overwhelming talk, this is really funny and I've never said this to George before my, I had two I had two thoughts the first one was what an amazing space Who's done it? And the second thought was, when I met the man who had done it, I thought, wow, that's what I was thinking. So th those were the th two thoughts initially that I had. Which, which, which of the um, restaurants was that? That was at Beak Street. Okay. And it was just overwhelming. I felt like I'd come home, but I'd never seen it before. And it was just meeting him. It was just, it was all a really strange day. Very so strange what happened day. on that day? Um, we were talking about food development. And all I remember thinking was, he's kind of cool, and he make you know his coffee place was really cool, and uh, yeah, it was just. <laughs> By the way, George is sitting to my left yeah, for yeah. those who are listening and nodding, agreeing, and looking nodding. slightly sheepish. Yeah. yeah. 
So that, uh, to be honest, it was life-changing. That, that moment? That moment. I can, you know, there are not many moments that people can say in their life that they walked over some line, and I did, and it changed my life. But I think this is what's really interesting about George's work, and, and we'll come on to that in a moment, is that he, he is really well known for doing this extraordinary combination of extraordinary food and beautiful environments. Mm. And to an extent, I think, George, and I like to think Caroline and I are um, credited with the sort of similar design yeah. moment yeah. and that kind of industrial moment. And, um, and that, that's very interesting that you had that sort yeah. of profound um, reaction to that. And so you then, you worked at Fernandes and Wells until you guys then sold out. Well, yeah. you, you, you were running the entire sort of the logistics, were you? I was running the business, yeah. As well as having your own bakery? Uh, yeah. Called Blue Door? Blue Door Bakehouse. So t talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, well, the Blue Door Bakehouse was set up initially for Fernandes and Wells because George was uh, always chasing the best products. That was his thing. It was like the best bread, and he would constantly be upset by the fact that he couldn't find what he wanted. And then he met me, and I developed a whole range of products for them. And within that, I then stepped back from Fernandes and Wells for a little while to establish the Blue Door Bakehouse, which was starting to ferment cake, which took me a long time, but we had a business out of it. And I then sold into Fernandes and Wells, decided that I'd got this thing up and running, would do something else, had been invited by another big restaurant group to go and run that and the, the food side. And obviously Fernandes and Wells were like, well, no, why would you do that when you can come and do this for us? So that's kind of how that happened. And I did that for five years, I think, about five years. And now um, tell us about your new project, Fortitude. I mean, that is, um, that, that's, you've, you've been doing that for a year and a half now, yeah. I think. So just tell, I mean, I don't know if, does anyone, has anyone been there who's here? Okay, so talk, talk. <clears throat> well, Fortitude Bakehouse is a, a bakery primarily that makes products for wholesale, as a wholesale business. But the reason I wanted to do it was because it's about craft and craft baking industry in the UK is disappearing and a lot of the heritage wheats and grains are disappearing. And I've always been very passionate about organic food and have always been involved in that industry. And George and I are very like-minded in that way. We want the best of, of products. But Fortitude uh, does something that nobody really in the world does in a com on a commercial basis. Although when you walk in, you don't see it as that. It's, it's like a really beautiful space where people come and have really nice cake. But the, the premise of the business is that we can make sourdough cake and fermented products for up to 100 customers at a time from our space. And that's what we do currently. So we make a range of maybe 20 products that are sold into uh, lots of the very prominent coffee shops in London. And yeah, it's a sort of tw 24 hour a day, seven day a week operation. Well, we have them in peddlers. I, I, I wouldn't say peddlers, that we're, yeah. Yeah, we're, very, we're very lucky to have that. Yeah. But um, so I'm gonna move on to George now. Boys, do you want to get a few more logs to put on the fire just to keep us super toasty? That's your job. Mm. Um, so George, your I mean, Dee sort of slightly um, skated over this there, but in, to my eye, um, the Fortitude Bakery is one of the most beautiful restaurants 
in London at the moment. It's very simple. I mean, it's basically got kind of beautiful, I mean, the perfect blue sliding doors at the front. It's a very narrow space. It's sort of super relaxed, but super considered. One of the things that if you look George up on the internet, I think I'm pretty certain you'll see that you're credited with having sort of been the first person to do this kind of slightly sort of bare brick wall industrial thing. How much does that environment remain? I mean, I know you're a great man for provenance and food, and we'll come to that, but, yeah. but how much does that environment... Is, how, how important is that to what you do? Oh, it's, 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 it's massive. It's, it's, uh, I love it. Yes. I mean, you were a huge... You inspired me with, with peddlers in the early days. Like going in there as a customer, as a local... You know, I've, I've got bits that I got from you. you. It was a huge inspiration to me. It really was. Well, that's very, that's uh, very nice. No, to hear. It, it was. It's but, amazing. But I mean, you, but the environment. I mean, it's all very well having great food, isn't it? But I but think it's it needs got a whole package. Yes. It's not just the the space. I think the space is important. I think it's like in the same way that people treat treat their homes. You know, people who are into it. I think it's 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 hospitality. The delivery of it, it's that combination of, it's the whole thing, really. Yes, yes, but, but, I, but I mean, I think what, what's so interesting is that that whole kind of looks become sort of super cookie cutter, hasn't it? It's been done. And you're, you're, keeping on, you're keeping on moving on with that. Yeah, I think you just, you need to keep evolving, but not for the sake of evolving. I think it's a journey that you go on, you embark and you discover new things. And it's also... I know this, is, this has been said and it's, it's now become slightly cliched. I think it's also a, a case of working with the space that's presented to you. Rather than imposing your will on the space, it's allowing the space that you have to express itself. Yes, yeah, so in other words, you don't try and change a Georgian house into a John Pawson it's working. It's working with it. And, yeah. And... Uh, but it's also, I mean, for me, it's never been a chore. I mean, I, it's just that that whole thing, like, you know, you talk about the blue, the blue on the front door of, of, of fortitude. It's, it's uh, at times it can send you slightly loop the loop because you become a little bit obsessive about it. But when you, when you finally find the blue, if it's the blue that we're talking about, there's such a, it's, Pretty. But hospitality and retail seem to me to be about detail. I mean, I don't think you can be a great restaurateur or, or retailer without being obsessive. You know, when you create a space that is also going to be, it's not, it's not a museum, it's not an art installation, it's, it's got to be. I mean, function's always been a big thing for me. I do believe that design is in has to go it's almost a result of functionality that's always been my kind of way of looking at it um, and I think when you create a space that you think is like super functional or super beautiful when people start sort of messing with it or moving it it, it can um, yeah, but you have out. to let people do what they want to you've do. Got no with it. Yes. In, in, yeah. You've got no choice, especially in a bakery. So now you, you, you've been essentially um, involved from the beginning in Monmouth Coffee, obviously Fernandes and Wells, and now um, Fortitude. Yeah. Take, uh, and your, your origins are Spanish. Take us back to your 
childhood. What, what, what was what, what's your background? Born and born and bred in London. Uh, parents uh, left Spain in in the 60s when there really wasn't much happening. You know, in the height of Franco era, uh, they came over. Uh, my elder sisters. I'm one of three. I'm the youngest. Uh, they're a lot older. They were both born in in northern Spain. I was born on the Harrow Road. Uh, brought up in Queens Park. For those of you that are familiar with with London, uh, not the Queens Park that you know today. It's Which is a, a very lot. yeah, a it's, very affluent changed, area. Yeah, changed a lot. So, so anyone who thinks, I, anyone who knows about your work, I think thinks about a sort of purity of provenance, mm. and, and you are. You know, I, I think your whole thing is about simplicity and quality. Is that yep. is that right? Yeah. So so where did that where did that come from? How did you end up at Monmouth? Let's let's so let's let's talk about Monmouth Coffee. Tell, tell us about the beginning of that. Um, I set up a, a bazaar. It's, it's an interesting one. I this this uh, for, for this this guy decided that he would set up a kiosk on platforms nine and ten of Clapham Junction train station and this was like 1998 I decided and he was like come and work for me do this I've been working in coffee since the mid 90s and uh, my mother used to take me to Neil's yard as a as a child so I was familiar with Monmouth coffee that was obviously been going since 78 Neil's yard cheeses that whole kind of scene Um, anyway we set this 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 kiosk up and I got in Monmouth Coffee. I got in the best baked products that I could. I put in the Marzocco, which at the time was an all-seeing, all-dancing coffee machine. And yeah, went completely overkill for. Uh, so espresso and cappuccino didn't exist really in Britain. It, am, am I wrong? It, it, it had started. It, it had started. Seattle okay. Coffee were the first to sort of break the old Italian sort of frothy coffee cafe thing that was all that really existed it had just started there was none of this third wave i mean monmouth had been going since 78 yes okay so yeah. but yeah. but but anita's thing was was single origin coffee really done and what has now interestingly enough become quite the sort of fashion thing of pour over that i still refer to as filter which is how i yes. generally drink coffee anyway yeah. but um, so that's where it kind of began, and I think that's where. Don't know. I couldn't. I honestly couldn't tell. You. I mean, I, I think my sisters were a huge. I mean, Dee talks about women uh, quite a bit just now, but I mean, I, I, I was basically raised by aunts and sisters, and both my sisters, particularly the um, uh, Nellie, who lives in the states, it always had a very keen eye for. You know, she ran one of the floors at Liberty and she's amazing eye for aesthetic and stuff like that and I, I just think I it was the way I yes, was brought up. Yeah. But the but the food thing wasn't huge in your Uh we never ate out. We as uh, growing up we my dad was like we don't eat in restaurants, we eat at home and But I don't uh, think I mean I don't think anyone ate out in restaurants in, in until uh, cert- when we were in the 80s until the 80s in Britain, did they? Probably not. I mean, we went to restaurants on either when we were forced to because we had yeah. nowhere else to eat or massively special occasions. But they cooked really well. Yes, 
they cooked really, really well at home. And uh, but I think the the, the main cap. Well, I'm not sure who I was talking to this about earlier, but I think for me, the the thing that sort of um, awakened that thing about food for me was being part of the beginnings of Borough Market. Right. Okay. When it literally first got going, and there were seven traders, and I was there with Monmouth Coffee, making. And that excited you, did you? You thought, yeah. that's, that's what I want to do. got to suddenly meet all these guys from all over the country bringing in their wares of, you know, scallops that the guy who had literally died for them was there selling them. Uh, the, the venison guy who <coughs> shot the yeah. deer yeah. from a distance. The, all of this that was just like, at the time, I mean, now we, we, we're, we're kind of a bit, sort of, it's kind of almost, for some, the norm time this was mind-blowing yes yeah so so talk to me about um fernandez and wells so so you you i mean as as i'm reading it you know th that was your moment working for monmouth you it, it was inspiring and exciting My apprenticeship. And, and then yeah and then and then at the market you sort of saw all these fascinating people but then you set up this what turned out to be a smallish chain but a chain nonetheless of incredibly influential coffee shops with a friend who, I mean, how did you meet Rick Wells? Rick was a customer and um, who, who was at the BBC. He would come into Monmouth on his way to work and we, you know, we would chat just like I would with anybody else. There was a, a connection in that uh, my wife at the time was Greek and his wife happened to be Greek, who it turned out were from the same island. So there was that sort of point of conversation and it was... Um, to cut a long story short, uh, I, I opened up a couple of things. I had a cafe at, at Foils, and I, I had this... And what was the name of that cafe at Foils? The Cafe at Foils. Okay, okay. It was uh, quite an institution. And you, yeah. yeah, no, but people you, loved it. You people, were running that uh, under yeah. contract to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was still at Monmouth, so I was doing bits and pieces. But Nick came into Monmouth Street one day and said, oh, the South Bank uh, are looking for a... For, for somebody to do a cafe. And uh, I didn't really think much of it. Uh, it was not a part of town that I generally frequented because it hadn't been sort of uh, done. And Rick, Rick happened to come in and I kind of mentioned it and he was like, let's go and have a look. There was no, it was, it was, it was something that completely just snowballed out of nowhere. And before I knew it, I'd quit. And we had decided, I think my time was up. I had to do something a bit fickle in that sense. Uh, needed a new new challenge. And he, he had the, the backing to do it. He put in the lion's share of the money. Rick, Rick yeah, did, yeah. Yeah, but it was a catalyst of, of getting these, these things. It didn't happen. We didn't open in, in, in South Bank. We ended up opening in Soho, which was kind of fortuitous yes way. but that's how it really began but and, and the original idea was great coffee and a very simple menu of very carefully sourced in the first one had no coffee lexington oh, street okay. was the first one and i needed a break from coffee i mm -hmm. really i i wanted to showcase uh, uh, wine and cured meats and farmhouse cheeses but done completely differently to, to what to the way that it had been up until that point it was a, much more of a sort of 
uh, a London thing meets Europe meets a little bit of Antipodea in there thrown in for good measure, some would say. And we, we had no space to put a coffee machine. I probably would have done if we had more space. But they opened up so quickly, one after the other. I mean, one opened in January, the Beak Street, which was the sort of the cafe that set the mm. set the bar really. Uh, opened in March of the same year. But so, how did you fund that? Rick between was us, no, between right, us. Okay. We wow. Were, he put in a lion's share. I put in, you know, what I had at the time, and we did it with not a huge amount of money. And then, in the end, you had seven. 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 Yeah including a big one in Somerset House. Big and, one. And, 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 and you're now out of that, although it still bears your name. What, what, what happened at the end there? Um, it had become something that was not who I am. I mean, we've touched on it, you've spoken about it already, you know, provenance, and I'm, I, I just love stuff that's really well made and that can be anything from a sandwich, a coffee, a glass of whatever it is. And once you get to a certain, you know, once you go down a certain path, I think it, 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 it becomes something else. And I just wasn't, I just didn't love it. And right, the opportunity okay. presented itself to, for me to, to sort of sell and, and get out and move on. And, um, I took it really, and and it that that afforded fortitude. So how how does I mean th th this may not be a question you want to answer on the record, but how does it feel having a business that still bears your name that you're not entirely in love with? I, I, it's not to be honest. It's not something I I I it really doesn't. I, I don't think about it. No, it's because not, people don't necessarily associate you with yeah, this. Or, yeah, it's not. I, you know, I've kind of moved on. I'm so it's at the moment, and for 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 more than I mean, we, I know we've been open for a little bit over over a year, but I've been you know, fortitude has been so much of our every day. That's kind of all we sort of really live and breathe and think that it's not something I dwell. Obviously, I sold, and, and they're not, you know, the people that I'm going to sell to want to keep that brand alive. So it wasn't something that, I, it didn't bother me. No, you can't complain. I mean, it's, yeah. It didn't yeah. bother me. I mean, I've still got my, you know, my name's still on my passport. And yes. Still my father's yeah. son. Yeah. yeah. And my son's got, you know, that name. So it's not like I've lost a name. It's just a, it's just a brand, isn't and, it, and, really? and Yes. And how old are you now? I'll be 46 okay, in July. Okay, so, so there's a long, a lot of life ahead. And Fortitude is, is, is doing well. Yeah, fabulous. And what do you want to do with, with that? We have no plan. Uh, we have no three-year plan. We have no five-year plan. We, to be honest, when we first started thinking about Fortitude, it wasn't even, we weren't even going to do a bakery. It, it, it was, uh, the original thought was uh, the... He's looking at D here, for those of you we listening. Spent, we spent weeks and weeks coming up with this idea for, for a mishui, which is, funnily enough, sort of cooking over coal. Uh, and life's twists and turns, you know, for, 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 in the right way, ended up with this slow ferment craft bakery that, you know, I think really needed to showcase this, 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 this woman's skills, really. And, and um, I, I have no idea where we're going with Fortitude. I think it's, we're taking it, 
We're growing it slowly in a measured way. We're working with really cool uh, businesses across London uh, and beyond who get it and want to buy into and invest. You know, even simple things like, you know, a lot of coffee places are used to being able to just like, oh, you run out of cake, you ring up and it's like, I need more cake. Can I get more cake for tomorrow? You can't do that with sourdough because you need to, it needs time. So you, you, you really, people who kind of get it and buy into it, your people, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing journey. But, but I mean, you and I have been friends for a few years now. Yeah. One of the things that, that strikes me about you is you don't ever appear to get so sort of stressed by stuff. I mean, you have I been... Do. You do, okay. No, I do. So no, I think I think this. I think you know. I think this is more. Yeah. You. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the other thing that um, that I think that just sort of finish up. Caroline and I work together. How do you two cope with this kind of um, you know couple working together <laughs> thing? There are a few of us around this campfire that work together. Do you cope well? Uh, or? Well, we've been doing it for a long time now. Um, Albeit in a slightly different, you know, for Nans and Wells, I, it, it was, it was, you know, I was in, in theory the boss, although really, I think Dee's been been the boss for a long time. <laughs> truth, truth be told, uh, as with anything, I think there 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 are there are there are moments where emotions get get raised, but we've been doing it for so long. It, it just does. It just feels like second nature for us. And um, you know, a big challenge is 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 for you know the, the the main stresses have always generally been uh, when it comes to sort of things like you know in business terms, cash flow. Whenever anything to do with money gets kind of thrown in there, it it can it can raise the sort of tension, but. We, I think we generally handle it pretty well. I think we it's always odds. money that creates tension. Money, in money yeah. is the, is the. Um, but we've been lucky. I think we've fortitude incredibly. Like I'm talking to you earlier, it's. I, I suspect it's not luck. What do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean seriously. I mean I, I think that it's 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 you know hard work, experience, um, that that probably more than luck, but. Somebody said to me, uh, you know, somebody, somebody else who's in the, in, in the industry said, oh, my God, like, what's it like having gone back to square one? You know, because the first, first year and a bit, you know, we've been working day in, day out, washing dishes, sweeping floors, making cakes, serving customers... And somebody said, you know, like, what's it like going back to almost sort of square one, with, with starting again? And um, I think two things. Number one, I think if you embark on something new, unless you've got, well, unless you've got the experience and the know-how, but the willingness to really roll your sleeves up and get stuck in for a long period of time, I don't, I, you know, I think your chances of, of making it are, 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 are pretty slim. So hard work. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. I think that's yeah. the big one. Mm. I really do. I totally agree, yeah. Yeah. 
George and Dee, thanks very much. Brilliant. <laughs>